0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Today I'm going to pose the question exactly how hot does the frying pan have to get? So, Steve, why don't you start us off with why would I ask that question?
0: Well, I think we're asking this question because all around us there are changes happening in our culture. Some of us have been noticing there have been changes for the last few decades. Uh, Christianity has been pushed out of the classroom, it's been pushed out of our role of government, it's been pushed out of our textbooks, it's been pushed out of the you know the general public square. And so with that comes a change not only of what the faith of our nation is, but also with what is it that we allow, tolerate, practice, or expect. And so we have seen gradually over time the intrusion of humanism into our daily lives. And it's happened with everything from the tax code to how our children behave to what we see on television. And so because it's been done gradually, we've been able to gradually make war with it or gradually accept it and change with it. But the question is, where is the point in which it becomes so intolerable, when it becomes so humanistic that a Christian cannot coexist with the humanism as it is in the temperature in our culture today.
1: So the expression, you know, jumping from the frying pan into the fire basically says it gets so intolerable, whatever it is, the heat, that then you jump into the fire, which of, of course is hotter than that. So jumping, being in the frying pan or the fire, neither one of those are particularly optimum solutions or something that somebody would gravitate towards. So if it's not being in the frying pan and it's not jumping into the fire, what is the alternative?
0: Or another way to read this kind of expression or idiom is that we often describe our choices in this false dichotomy. Why would we go against the dangers of our current system if we know the process of bringing things back to the way that they're supposed to be is gonna be even more difficult? You know, for example, why would you go against the grain of uh, the current health crisis or go against the grain of public education if you know it's going to be a very difficult and costly fight to work through there? And I think the the idiom is asking you if you're gonna jump out of the frying pan, if you really don't like the way things are, are you willing to endure the consequences of your decisions or are you allowing those consequences to allow you to live a life of compromise.
1: So a good example would be this whole mask issue. It's funny how it has even progressed even to today. When it started it was a mask would protect you from this this virus. And then apparently not enough people were following suit and then the narrative changed to being a kind, loving person means wearing a mask, so you're not going to infect someone else. Interestingly enough, why would people just say no? Well, obviously not breathing isn't a good enough reason. And now if there is a fine attached to it. So the real question is, you have money, you've saved money. Is money only good for buying that new piece of tech or Could your money be well used if you're going to not go ahead with an ungodly, unconstitutional order that some of your money would go to paying the fine that was levied? People don't think that way. They think, well, I don't wanna be fined. I don't wanna get in trouble. And they lose principle over something that really won't cost them that much. And the chances of being jailed for not wearing a mask in most places in the nation is slim.
0: Right. And it comes back to this idea of personal peace and and affluence. Francis Schaeffer would often talk about that's the real, the God or the real desire of the modern humanist, or even the modern Christian who finds himself influenced by modern humanism. They're willing to add Christianity to their religion, but the core of their faith is I'll do whatever it takes. As long as I can keep my personal peace, right? I get to do basically what I want inside my home and personal affluence. People aren't going to take away what I earned or what I've saved. Except what we see today is the egregious removal of all of your personal preferences, your personal peace, in that everything from what you do in your home to what you do in front of your home at the supermarket, (laughs) at the hairdresser is being heavily regulated and even Uh, and to a great extent, being truncated. You're not allowed to do X. You're not allowed to do Y. There was even a report uh, I heard on NPR recently where the health official recommended that if you have an elderly person in your home, it's advisable that you should wear a mask in your home. So the, the old boundary stone of, well, we'll do nothing more as long as it doesn't affect our personal peace and affluence, that's even gone out the window. So what is the principle guiding the American people or the humanists of today? It's I don't wanna be put in jail or I don't wanna face the public embarrassment of those people who go against these federal or state or county guidelines.
1: And yet some of these same people will talk about the acts of the apostles and how Paul was in jail, and the jailer was converted, and how Peter and John would be beat up and told not to do that again. And those who beat them up and the authorities that ordered that beating would think, this will be enough, this will stop them, and it did not. And so I think as long as life was fine, and this could be something that was up on the Sunday school felt board or whatever they use now that it was good enough but as soon as we start thinking of well do we have situations in our life where we say we must obey god rather than man or have a lot of people just decided that the only thing the only verse that we're going to repair to is that you should obey the authorities or love your neighbor and so we now have people christian people asserting that if another person does not wear a mask, I've been told this, you are not loving your neighbor.
0: Right, and there was an article in Christianity Today this week that said that Christian college students who go back to school refusing to wear masks are not expressing the love of Christ and do not deserve to go back to their colleges if they're not willing to comply uh, with this type of of behavior.
1: So I think it's safe to say we are beyond humanism is encroaching. I think what lies ahead for us is Christianity has to start encroaching on humanism.
0: Yes, and I think a good example to go back to is even before uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the subversion of the Christian religion is really instrumental to any understanding of first century Christianity. To understand the story of Jesus, you need to understand the political situation of Palestine that Christ was born into. Between Herod, the quote, Herod the Great, and Constantine, we see a progression of a Jewish people under the Roman state to a Christian people controlling the Roman state. But if you go backwards from Herod the Great throughout Jewish history, you have the idea that Israel was its own independent kingdom following the law of God, and its blessings came from its obedience to the law of God. Whenever, Whenever Israel withdrew its obedience, played the harlot the scripture says then god would send in a foreign king or disease from within and he would purify israel by sending them out to the babylonians but at the time of christ's advent and this is very important to uh, the beginning of the gospel the nativity of jesus is christ is born into a palestine that is the puppet country of the roman empire herod the great herod king herod was not a legitimate jewish king there are even some who believe that Herod was not even legitimately Jewish. He was completely a subversion of the kingly reign of Israel. And so Jesus is born into a Palestine that would be tolerated. The temple could go on and worship. People could offer their sacrifices as long as they paid their, their tithes and offerings, their tributes to Rome, And allowed Rome to install the king over the people of Israel. There was a sense in which peace, uh, at the cost of their own prosperity, the cost of their own individual faith, was the cost of their occupation of their own land. But as you see through the ministry of Jesus, that the people of Israel did not actually possess any of the things that they claimed to have as a matter of compromise with the Romans. They claimed that the Romans allowed them to worship there, but as John the Baptist and Jesus demonstrate, the temple at the time of Christ's advent was not a true temple, right? It had been desecrated. The priestly line was corrupt. The Sanhedrin was not after God's heart. They worshiped not the Lord of the scripture, but were, as Jesus calls them, the sons of Satan. And the true temple was what John the Baptist brought out to the wilderness. And so I think we're facing the same thing here today. We were founded as a Christian nation. We were placed amongst Christian principles. But as we have moved away from obedience to God's principles, God's law, then God has allowed the humanist to come over, take over. And now what we think we possess, our homes, our property, our privileges, are actually not our possessions any longer. And we have found ourselves in the same situation Christ came to when he established the kingdom there in Palestine.
1: And so really and truly what Chalcedon and people associated with it for the last 55 years has been saying is that Christian education is the key to being able to, fight the enemies of God and to serve the kingdom. So interestingly enough, when people didn't care whether or not their children were going, what their children were learning in public schools, a lot of them only really discovered the implications when their children either got older, moved out of the house, went to college and started espousing things that were diametrically opposed to what their parents had worked for. So their parents had made sure they got what they considered a good education and they were going to give them the best of everything. And now these same children have turned around and are hating their family, their culture, their heritage. And so Christian education still remains the key, but not just the education of little children. We have a whole population that needs to understand that the only reason the state can be so big is that the church and the family have given up their proper jurisdictional roles.
0: And I think a lot of that has to do with what are parents' expectations. I think there's been a huge shift in the last 50 years between parents expecting their kids to be victorious Christians to their primary goal, That their kids might have a good job or might have a healthy marriage or they might feel successful or the idea of what was important or what was valuable has shifted with the culture. There was a time that Christians believed in some sort of future hope that God has a plan to intervene in history and that He was the source of our riches, wisdom, peace, affluence, and that without Him, those things were impossible. And yet we live in this strange world where many Christians think that those two things are separate. That we could have the blessings of God, whether that's wealth or peace or affluence, without the obedience unto God. That somehow we might be able to achieve the things that only come from God while refusing to make Him the Lord of those things
1: in our life. And interestingly enough, and I've had more than a few conversations with parents who are more concerned with their children being successful and being able to get a good job. Now, how funny that is in terms of people can have their businesses closed down. They can be told they can't go to school or whatever it is. So whatever success they were hoping for their children, I wonder how many are realizing that it was a facade, almost like a hologram, that they were aspiring towards, but was never really real.
0: Right. Well, and that comes back to what people really believe about Jesus. There were several disciples who followed Jesus around, listened to every word he said with the intent of obeying them, not because they thought that here was the source of uh, Romans being overthrown, but because they literally believed that Jesus was the source of wisdom, that out of all of the intelligence in the world, Jesus was the most intelligent. Out of all the wisdom of the world, Jesus was the most wise. And so they saw in him being God in the flesh, the idea that everything else in the world would be foolish if they did not follow this. Yet Christians today don't think that way. They think that there is wisdom in the scripture, right? And we'll follow that. But that there's this separate wisdom, the separate information we can have about uh, how to run your home, how to get far in your career, how to cooperate with government that somehow is subordinated or even separate than the wisdom of Christ. But the reality is, if you were to say, even today, who is the most intelligent man who's ever lived? It has to be Christ. And yet, we do not live in, though, as we believe that wisdom comes from this First century uh, Palestinian figure who walked around uh, through the, the land of Israel.
1: An interesting statistic through this whole corona closure is that suicides have um, increased. Now, it's not like suicide wasn't a problem, but I read something today that said one quarter of the young people um, surveyed said that they contemplated suicide at some point. During their separation from their normal routines. And it's an interesting thought as to why somebody would lose all hope. Except, I think the answer is sort of self-revelatory. If you don't have hope and real hope, hope that is solid and is foundational, then it's not surprising that people can't find a reason to live.
0: Yes, and the hope that we seem to miss is that there's hope beyond something in this world. I think that there's no coincidence that a people who put their trust in material possessions, in their career, their status, when those things are literally closed, right? If, you're, if your status is based on I'm a, a great doctor or I'm a great lawyer, and suddenly the place you go to called your office every day is closed, then who are you? Or if your status is based on the amount of money in your bank account and suddenly the government has taken away your business or your ability to make money, well, what's, where's the hope? I think there's also a sense in which for, for many years we've been operating on certain social paradigms that are born out of the truths of Christianity. You know, the relationships between mothers and their children, uh, the relationships between neighbors against neighbors, And each one of these humanist encroachments upon our personal liberties has a natural effect on our identity. So laws are not separate from who we are, but rather a reflection of the truth that we believe. So when God gives us good laws, when he says, honor your neighbor, don't kill, those things do what's best for the human soul, for the human body. The great danger of draconian laws, the great danger of unbiblical, dishonorable, evil laws is not only that they take away our personal affluence or they take away our personal liberties, but they go against the very identity that God put in us. When you begin to limit how people can interact with each other, take away their ability to worship freely, you're not just destroying some arbitrary idea called legal rights. You're actually destroying the image of God in man. The state is actively tempering down your humanity because the laws that the Christian foundations are based on are meant to build up what it means to be human, whereas anything that goes against that physically kills people.
1: And so we ha- we're really at, I believe, a crisis point. I suppose everybody over the centuries thought that what was happening during their time was an existential threat, that was, is the expression. But I think, for, for me anyway, as I interact with people many of whom would say they are Christian, they are more afraid of death than it seems than anything else. And yet, if anybody has studied history, if anybody has lived long enough, you know that death is a phenomenon that happens and there's no stopping it. So why do you think this fear of getting this virus Much of the data surrounding it isn't even true. But why do you think this fear has overtaken the church to the point that when the government says you must not meet, they think that they're being righteous by not meeting, as if the purpose of the church was to prevent people from getting sick, as opposed to the purpose of the church was to instruct them for their need of eternal life?
0: Well... Sickness is a religious concept. Uh, As much as we want to in our modern secularist scientific idea, try to make sickness about germs and viruses and bacteria, the idea of health and safety has always throughout history been a religious concept. In fact, the very thrust of Christ's message is I have come to bring life as opposed to sickness and life abundantly as opposed to death. The entire message of Christ is he came to set the captives free. Free from what? Free from death. The message of the prophet Isaiah was he came to heal the people, that he might set them free from their infirmities, from their sickness, that they might be brought into new life. So from a Christian perspective, the story of the gospel is how a sick people, sick with sin that affect their bodies, become whole and healed and live forever. But that's also been the attempt of every false religion all throughout human history, that the god, whether it's a king or a pharaoh, whether the god is some idol made of gold or bronze, that idol was supposed to bring them health, safety, protection from plague, pestilence, earthquake, famine, whatever it is, it was always a contrary idea of health versus life. And, today in our age we have separated what we call religious ideas from political ideas, but Dr. Rashtini points out that what we see today is that the real goal of life, the real object of the socialist, or the real object of the humanist is power, and they will use the promise of life for the sake of power. Can the state actually protect you from getting this virus? No, they they depend on institutions and figures and individuals outside of their control to make these false promises. But the end goal of their promises is not health, but rather power.
1: And interestingly enough, even when they say they can make you safer, a lot of the policies that come out of their expediency to dominate people makes people sicker and brings about more death. So I think it's In a lot of ways, this is a blessing from God because you do need to have a wake-up call. If you're asleep on the beach and the tide is coming in, you know, maybe you fell asleep and the tide was way out and you were fine, you could take a nap. But if you somehow or other don't wake up before the tide comes in, you could drown. And so I'm hoping that as the news keeps getting tighter, to change the metaphor, as the frying pan keeps getting hotter, that people will finally come to a point and realize that the only thing that matters is their eternal relationship with Christ and their responsibility to the kingdom of which they have citizenship. And so rather than being concerned as to whether you're a good citizen of your city, a good citizen of your state, of your country, where do you stand in terms of your citizenship in heaven? And if it's not that important to you, maybe you have fooled yourself into thinking that you are faithful.
0: Right. Well, and to go back to what you, you were just saying, that can you think of an example where state intervention has made the thing they intervened into better? So if, when the state intervened in education, Uh, in the 1920s. Can we say that children are better educated now, even considering the trillions of dollars that have been spent in the last century on education? Do students know more? Are they more intelligent? Are they more capable? Are they more independent? Even the public school advocates have to admit that the children of the 1920s who spoke Latin in their classes, who followed through with Uh, Reading beyond the high schools of today, education and the government intervention has failed education. So why would we believe that the same institution when when introduced into public health would do any better? But even if you want to believe that the World Health Organization or somebody like Dr. Fauci is the expert that we need, where else do you trust the government's information on health? Do you trust their food pyramid that has been proven to not help you? That it was paid for and bought for by sugar lobbies and and those who want to put processed food and processed oils in your diet, right? Why would you trust the people who fed you a standard American diet that's made Americans more obese, more diabetic, more unhealthy than any time in their history? Why would they be the experts you go to to find out how to fight a new virus? Okay, I'm going to interrupt
1: you here for a second because they're very much like the serpent telling Eve and Adam, hath God said, in other words, rather than looking at the educational system or the healthcare system as failures, just change your perspective a little bit and they are flaming successes. And the testimony is that we have people now saying things like history grammar diligence hard work are all part of some sort of racial privilege and so what has been being demolished is the idea of whatever is good whatever is wholesome the fruit of the spirit things like that in other words we have set and and watch them tear things down and now saying can't everybody see how bad this is well apparently not everybody thinks of it as being bad and so we need to realize there is a war and too many of those who would call themselves on the side of christ have been you know going to the bread and circuses and not caring about what happens to their society
0: right and there is a great i don't know if it's irony or a sadness to look at the pressing political issues of our day and see that the solutions put forward by the status are worse than the problem, right? In the 1930s, when America was going through a great depression, there was an insertion of government authority over tax, private, taxing of private income, insertion of government authority over public works. And these ideas were meant to alleviate the poor. And yet today there are more hungry, more impoverished, more people under the poverty line than there were during uh, the Great Depression. Or if you look at the, the great political issues of today, we're talking about the, what's described as systematic racism in our culture, where we have the idea on one hand that the slavery or the forced conscription of people to labor without pay was the greatest injustice of American history. And so as a result, here we are 200 years later, still trying to fix that economic disparity, yet the majority of people in our country are conscripted against their will to give the fruit of their labor to the state for the benefit of corporations and other organizations. We have saw the evil in one form of slavery and then distributed the evil amongst everybody. And so the solution or the, the cure has in all of these situations become worse than the disease. The government told us that the way we handle uh, marriage, divorce, the way we handle children and inheritance is to give control to the state. And then that would solve the problems of women who are being mistreated by husbands. And that would solve the problems of children who are not cared for by the parents. And that would solve the problems of the elderly not being cared for at the end of life. Yet today, the problems have become worse. Divorce is all the more rampant. Abuse in marriages is all the more of an issue. Children are even more abandoned and abused. Sex abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse is protected by the state now. And then worse than that, the vulnerable parts of our society, the elderly are put up for euthanasia. They're told to live on the subpar income of social security and forced to live desolate lives. These were all part of the government solutions. Yet, continually, Christians keep telling us, let's trust in the experts of the government. When has there ever been an example where the government's intrusion in our lives had made anybody more free, more safe, more full of liberty? And the answer is never.
1: And I think what people are afraid of doing, they're afraid of giving up what they think was their only hope. So, we have to vote this way because we're just one Supreme Court justice away from having abortion end. You know what? If this was a truly moral people, we wouldn't need the Supreme Court, one of however many justices, to say this was right or wrong. It would be an unthinkable thing that people would kill children in the womb. Well, as soon as that didn't become unthinkable, then you could have the idea of, getting rid of people who were not as useful to society, who had a disability or who were aged. And so as long as we're going for man-made solutions, we are going to reap what you get from man-made solutions. And the Bible is chock full of stories. It didn't take a majority of people. Gideon certainly did not win his battle with the Midianites because he had an overwhelming army and he had as many Supreme court justices as he needed. When we don't understand that God plays for keeps and God has the ability to change things in a heartbeat. Although I don't know if that's a good analogy for God with a heartbeat, but we'll keep it that way. Anyway, my point being is that could we be experiencing this right now because God wants us to say, folks, The tide is coming in. What are you going to do about it?
0: And it has to do with what we describe as the kingdom of God. You know, we often look at the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. And we have this idea that Jesus came in the world to give us an otherworldly comfort as we go through this worldly discomforts. But that's not what Jesus promised. The the blessedness that Jesus promises to his people is not that the kingdom is somewhere in the future, but rather that through your personal relationship with Christ, that the kingdom is now, the kingdom is near. And so even when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for the kingdom to come, he's not asking that his disciples might endure the hardships or endure suffering or endure austerity today for the sake of some future heavenly reality, but rather saying that because they have Jesus, because Christ has come into the world and established his reign and kingdom through his death, burial, resurrection, and conquering of death, that that kingdom reality is greater than anything in this world. So blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, Blessed are those who mourn, because even in this state, we have the confidence, the assurance, the reality that the kingdom of God is here with us, putting down the deeds of the devil that has the wisdom, the power, and the structure to overcome all of these false facades of power and authority, these other kingdoms that think they control while the Lord of heaven sits and is thrown and
1: laughs. So when Jesus delivered on the Mount his sermon, I think it's important to realize it wasn't an economic message. It wasn't blessed are the poor who don't have as much as someone else. It's blessed are the poor in spirit those who are humble before god those who know that god sets the rules that god sets the definitions so we need to not look at everybody who doesn't have a lot of money as being righteous and blessed but those who are poor in spirit the whole idea of being meek wasn't about just somebody comes up and slaps you and you go okay you know i'm not going to hit back or they want to close my business okay they want to say I have to wear a mask. Okay. No. Meek per the to the word that Jesus used meant broken to harness. In other words, we're subdued in Christ. We're not on our own agenda, we're on God's agenda. So we got to get away from this idea that to be a good Christian means that even if something doesn't make sense to you, like wearing a mask or telling a person who was born a boy and now thinks he's a girl. That the loving kind thing to do is to use this person's pronouns. When we go there, we have lost any connection with God and with Christ. That's right.
0: And the connection is the point of the Beatitudes. The point of the Beatitudes is not to give a cause and effect. It's like, well, there's poor amongst you. Don't worry. The poor will receive God's blessing. That's not what God is saying. The question is, where is god's kingdom and for the ancient world they said well those who have power those who have wealth those who sit on thrones that's where god's kingdom is right that's where god's favor is and jesus turns that around and says god is near to the poor meaning those who are poor although the world considers them powerless Blessed are they because they possess the kingdom of heaven. And the things of this world that we consider mighty, that we consider powerful, are nothing compared to those things that are blessed, that those things that are connected to Jesus. So who cares if you're poor, Jesus says. It doesn't matter that the world thinks you're not economically powerful because you're blessed. You're connected to the one who controls all of the wealth of the world. I mean, that is the entire message of the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus looks at the, the priest. He looks at the Levite. He looks at those who had political, religious, and social clout and says that they are useless. The ones who has power are the ones who see their connection to God and see their responsibility to do what is right now, even if nobody else recognizes that God has given you that power, that authority, and that strength to overcome the kingdoms of this world.
1: So I I think it's incumbent on all of us to recognize that not only is this a war, it's in process. And many of those who would normally be viewed as our allies are not acting as allies. They're much more likely to be classified as casualties. I've had conversations with people people who would call themselves Christian, and when you bring up the idea of this is a judgment on America because America has tolerated things like abortion and homosexuality and destroying the family, I can't tell you, Steve, how many times people say, okay, stop mixing subjects. All we're talking about now is COVID. And, and what they want you to do is basically say, we're just going to look at this and try to bring some sanity or understanding, but we're not going to use the Bible. So yeah, yeah, you and I both know we believe the Bible, but let's not use the Bible. Let's just really talk about facts. And what they're betraying is the fact that they don't really hold the Bible to be anything other than maybe a little amulet to wave around when they need some help and they don't know where else to go.
0: And not only that, are not using the bible as the source of where authority and purpose comes from. If Christ was among us describing the poor, the desolate, the the ostracized, the folks who don't have authority today, uh, well, how would he view uh, the people who belong to Christian churches today? Uh, would he count them among the The Levites and the priests who ignore the needs of the people for the sake of their own personal gain or their own personal indifference. Where are the Christian pastors who are willing to stand by mothers and fathers who are unable to provide for their children because we've allowed the government to control too much of our life?
1: You know, the modern narrative, because people do not know God's law, is that we have to excuse the looters because they have been oppressed and so they're now just getting what they were owed all along or the reason that they are violent or the reason that they steal or they injure or they kill in other words we're supposed to understand all this as though the ten commandments and god's law don't apply to everybody equally how ridiculous is it for anybody to think that God's law could be true, but only for some groups and not for others.
0: That's right. I think it's time for, for Christians to quit making excuses for our own failures, quit making excuses for our own fears, quit making excuses for our own lack of faith in what the Lord is going to do. It's very easy for us to take a step back and allow other people to do the heavy lifting to see the people like John MacArthur who are opening up their church in Southern California and saying, well, let's see how it works out for them. We'll wait to see if the Lord's going to bless them. Meanwhile, those of you who stand by the side, who are lukewarm, who are neither hot nor cold, the Lord's going to spit you out of his mouth. That's his promise to the churches who do not take a stand.
1: It's interesting that you put that situation with John MacArthur's church in Southern California because I was recently on a call with a Christian legal group that has committed to helping people who want to obey God, want to congregate together. And there was a point at this meeting where there was a QA, and a and somebody asked the question, what's the safest way we can maneuver through this and not get in trouble? And the person who was leading the meeting started to laugh and say you know go to your shelf and pull out your history book and find out whether there was ever a safe way to appease the enemies of god and you'll find out that there isn't and so then you have to have a decision making time which says what's more important to me and although people like to talk about oh our founding fathers you know when they sign that declaration of independence They were pretty much signing their death warrant if that cause did not prevail. And I just don't think we have that character enough today. You see it, and when you see it, you gravitate towards people, at least I do, who are willing to say, oh, yeah, okay, this might cause me some discomfort. And not unlike the three men who ended up in the furnace, you know, they didn't have any guarantee they were going to come out. They even said, We might not make it out. You may watch us burn. But that doesn't mean that what we're refusing to do isn't a proper stance before God.
0: Right. And I think Christians have embraced this misguided idea of proper stance. Uh, You'll see lots of articles published right now about submission to governing authorities, to, to being obedient, to suffering through the tyranny, because that's what our call is to Christians. And they kind of equate this idea of suffering or of being the loser in history with Jesus's idea of being poor in spirit or being meek, that somehow when Jesus talks about being poor, that's an aspiration, that of course Jesus wants us to be the doormat because Jesus really blesses the poor and the weak and the lowly. But when Jesus is talking at the, the mount, giving the beatitudes, he is not talking to a wealthy people telling them to go down and be poor, he is talking to the poor people who have no place to go but to the kingdom. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's talking to the people who he has just himself healed and rescued from their infirmities. And so the same thing is true with us as Christians. If we wanna be like Christ in our political situation today, we cannot encourage people who have means fall down, but rather we have to go to those who think they have means and convince them and show them that the things that they're putting trust in, the state, the government, the the experts, the humanism, the structures, that those things are true poverty. And you will be blessed once you realize that you have nothing. There is no confidence in the princes of this world. As the Psalm says that there's no confidence in shields or horses or chariots, The only place you have is if you say, I am blessed because there is nothing in this world that can strengthen me, save the kingdom. I'm blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize that the only place to find certainty of health, peace, prosperity is to put the kingdom of God first and that all of these things will be added to you after that.
1: Indeed. Well, I have a recommendation, which may not be a very popular one, but if you find yourself, listeners, hanging around with people who are just willing to see how it goes, as opposed to actually working towards bringing the kingdom in heaven to be realized on earth, that we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer find some new friends (laughs) find some people who may not be in your town they may not be in the same state even but there are things you can do especially now with the schools being in flux if you're somebody who has an understanding of god's word offer to help with other people who are struggling Offer to if parents have to go ahead and go to work and they can't take care of their children, offer to either homeschool them or pay for them to go to a Christian school or whatever it is. Let's be on the offensive. The one thing the enemies of God cannot stand are fearless people. So if we become fearful and we live in that, then we are much more easily controlled. But if we're fearless, and I don't mean reckless, I mean fearless, That we're going to do what's right, that we've examined what's right in terms of all of God's Word, as opposed to one verse that has been misinterpreted, then I think we're going to see a turnaround.
0: And uh, for, I guess, further reading on this topic, it's helpful to have a historical perspective. Rushdini's book, Christianity and the State, goes through how uh, Christians have historically handled places where the kingdom of our Lord contradicts the kingdoms of this world and how in the last 2000 years, the kingdom of our Lord wins every single time. Uh, so there's there's that. But another place to go in understanding our relationship with really humanists and things is Rush book on uh, guilt and pity, politics of guilt and pity, and to recognize that you have a different goal than the person you're debating on CNN or the person you're debating Uh, who is a member of the Democrat Party. They're motivated by an eschatology that is masochistic and self-atoning. They're looking for humanist solutions that really debase what it means to be a human. And we, who are good reformational Christians, reject the statist authority because we recognize God has made us to be conquerors and champions in him that we might bring solutions and growth and life to this world. That's why we have no fear.
1: So we have an alternative. We don't have to have the frying pan get so hot that we jump into the fire. We can rely on doing the right thing before God according to his law. And let me invite anybody who is listening or maybe somebody shared it with you. Rush Dooney's book, Law and Liberty, in, in really small chapters, will go through an analysis of how there is no liberty or freedom apart from God's law. And I invite you to get in touch with us. If you'd like some resources or connections in your area, you can always contact us at outofthequestionpodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And we'd be really interested in helping you connect up with other people.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.